Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I am Anne-Marie Koistra from the History Department, and I'm joined by... Carrie Peffley in the Philosophy Department. This week, we have kind of an unusual podcast in that we've brought on two guests, Marian Larson from the English Department and Nathan Gossett from the Math and Computer Science Department. All four of us at one time or another read the book, The Sparrow, which may or may not be a science fiction novel. And uh, we're going to talk about it and uh, we hope you enjoy. So I'm going to start with you, Marion. Um, it's been a long time since I read The Sparrow. And so since you are kind of English literature writing person uh, today, I wonder if you could just remind folks um, sort of what the basic plotline or premise of the yeah. novel is. Okay. So Nathan, if you feel like she's not characterizing that correctly, you feel free <laughs> to offer your explanation after Marion. And you know what? You don't have to invite Nathan to add or correct. Cause I think that'll just happen. But sure. um, yeah, this is one of those books where talking about it is hard because uh, there are so many potential spoilers to things that I might say. So I was reviewing, I was looking at the book again a little bit this morning, just to remind myself of when we learn certain things. Mm -hmm. But the basic idea is that uh, humans have, uh, humans are able to make first contact with sentient beings on another planet and uh, a group of uh, earthlings, um, which includes some scientists and uh, the central character in the novel, uh, Emilio Santos is a Jesuit. Um, and so we've got uh, the religious angle, the scientific angle. And so this group goes to this other planet and makes contact. Um, and then in terms of the narrative structure, the book alternates um, between uh, there's, a, I think, about a 50 year, 40 or 50 year gap in the narrative um, between uh, we, we meet Emilio Santos like on page one. And it's clear we don't know who he is, but we learn quickly that he's a Jesuit and that there's something really, something really horrible has happened to him. Um, he's physically and emotionally really fragile, but we don't know what the horrible thing is. Um, and then we backtrack to like 40 or 50 years before, and we kind of go back and forth. So that's all I'll say. I, I also was very worried about spoilers. And so I looked this up right before, like this morning, we find out on page one, that he's the only survivor. Right. So of this group that went to the other planet, he's the only one that came back. And that's okay. why there's the 40, 50 year gap is because yep. of travel time. Yeah. And like the middle of chapter one, we find out the bad thing. Okay. So I don't know how, like, uh, it, does that count as a spoiler? If that's like five pages into the book? No. I My husband would call that a spoiler. He won't even read okay. any piece of information beyond the title of a book. Um, but normal people would not consider that a spoiler. Okay. So, so Emilio, along with the other people, they go to this other planet. He's the only one that makes it back alive. He's, a, you know, great, grievously injured. 
you know, in the hospital, something bad has happened. And someone else said he killed a child and turned to prostitution. And so this is, this is all we know is they go to this other planet on that planet. Everyone dies except for Emilio. Emilio kills a child and becomes a prostitute and then ends up back on earth. And they're trying to figure out what on, you know, what went wrong here that this has ended so horribly. So Emilio is extremely traumatized. He's not really giving them a clear story. They only know about the prostitution and killing the child part because some, a second party arrived on the planet to discover Emilio in this state and sent him back. Okay. And Carrie, is that your memory of the book as well? Yes. And I can't, because again, for me, it hasn't, it's been a while since I read and discussed it. Um, but my recollection is that fairly early on, we also find out that the the contact that has been made, the thing that makes the humans so interested in this other planet is that they've heard music. Mm. So the other sort of interesting layer is that it's not just sentience, but some sort of higher culture that seems to be present in this, um, in this alien culture. Okay. And so... You know, I'm, I'm actually not a huge, huge fan of sci-fi, and I feel like this is definitely sci-fi. And I, I have heard, but I do not know, um, I've heard that you, Marion, and you, Nathan, have very um, strong opinions in different directions <laughs> about the book, but I don't know what those strong opinions are, and I don't know um, where the conflict is. So maybe since I started with Marion last time, Nathan, let's start with you. Yes. And then I'll correct whatever you say, Nathan. So to talk about, I I was assuming that we were going to have maybe a non-spoiler section because if you want to warn your listeners, I'm going to have to spoil the whole thing in order to discuss this. I think that's fine. Okay. So, you know, listeners have been warned. Um, I actually reread the book in anticipation of this discussion. Um, I have a different opinion of it on my second read. And I think the reason why I disliked it so much on my first read is I completely misunderstood the genre. I didn't know what I, I, um, you know, one page in I'm hearing, Oh, okay. Something bad has happened. Middle of the first chapter, you know, Volker says, Oh, he killed a child, turned to prostitution. Uh, Fairly early on in the book, Emilio says, "Ah, yeah, that's what happened, but you've got it all wrong. And so I, in my head, thought, ah, I understand what this book is going to be. This book is going to, you know, they told me the ending. I know the ending, but I misunderstand what that means. I'm going to re, you know, the story is going to recontextualize that. It's going to turn out that kid was space Hitler. Emilio was saving the universe. So so something we misunderstood what that is. And instead, what I found out is, no, they told me the ending. That, um, and this isn't a book about we're going to recontextualize that and it's not what you think. It's what you think, but the book is about what's the meaning behind this tragedy that has occurred. Yes. So a tragedy has occurred, that doesn't change. At the end of the book, it's still a tragedy. But was it just tragic, 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 or was it tragic and there was some meaning to mm-hmm. it? Yes. And so it's, it's like, I, I thought I was getting memento and instead I got, you know, never let me go. And so it's like, <laughs> hey, um, so I, and it, that's why I was so disappointed is I'm like, oh, that, you know, that, that's it. What, you know, the, the on page one, they told me the ending and that ended up being the ending. I, I've been ripped off. 
you know, I did not get my money's worth out of this, you know, story. But on my second read, I knew I knew what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. I understood that's not what this book is. And I, I think I got a lot more out of it on the mm -hmm. second read. Hmm. You know, Nathan, you're like a poster child for I'm going to I'm going to take what you just said and um, bring it to one of my lit classes where I tell students, um, you know, if you have a chance to read this, to, to read whatever I'm assigning twice or believe me when I tell you that this will have more meaning later, um, there is something about a second read through a book. Um, so uh, now I don't feel like I need to correct Nathan at all, but, <laughs> but I will say a little bit about why I was so drawn to this book. The thing that made me want to read this book in the first place is that I heard the author, Mary Daria Russell, being interviewed by Krista Tippett a few years ago. Krista Tippett, for those of you who don't know, is um, the person uh, who, with American public media in the Twin Cities who, on, uh, who records interviews for her program called On Being. And Mary Daria Russell uh, is a super interesting person. She's, uh, she's in, well, she's retired now, but she's an academic. Anthropology is her area. Um, for much of her early adulthood, she was uh, an atheist and she was in the process of converting to Judaism when she wrote this book. And um, I, I, uh, and one of the, so, so first of all, I thought that sounds really interesting. And one of the things she said in this interview is that uh, she's really fascinated by um, the age of discovery when we, when various missionaries, especially Jesuit missionaries, would be among the very first arrivers to a place right after the discoverer uh, discovered that place or that people group. And so the Jesuit missionaries uh, were among the very first Western contacts with many people groups. And she said that one of the reasons she liked imagining this in a different place, like on a totally different planet, is that you get to kind of relive some of the philosophical and theological issues around first contact without linking it to a particular real time and place on earth. Um, and it, so instead of making it sound like, oh, she's critiquing, uh, you know, Christopher Columbus or whatever, um, since it's in a totally different time and place, it's like redoing all of that. And, um, and to me, uh, two big things that this book is about. One is this book is about how people with good intentions can end up doing absolute uh, harm without meaning to. Um, and so, so the unintended consequences is kind of one of those big themes. And then the other big thing theme to me, the thing uh, to me as a Christian, the thing that makes the book uh, heartbreaking is the fact that Father Sandoz, um, his, his relationship with God was so much an emotional one. I mean, he, he loved God. It was like a romantic relationship and he feels utterly and absolutely betrayed and abandoned by God. And so his big struggle in this novel 
is really not the physical things Mm -hmm. that he experiences and sees, although that's huge. It's largely the utter spiritual desolation that he experiences in trying to process whatever, what happened to him. Hmm. And I think everybody can relate to that mm-hmm. in one way or another. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah I, he seems to struggle with, I mean, and I guess I hadn't thought about this when I first read it, but as I've been revisiting it for this conversation, I realized, right. The title comes from Matthew that God you know, not, there's not a sparrow that, that goes unnoticed by, by God. And so this idea of what God knows, what God allows, that taps into what Sandoz is struggling with throughout this book as he tries to kind of make meaning out of the tragedy or, or give up on trying to make meaning yeah. out of the tragedy. Um, Russell brings up that Bible verse in her interview with Krista Tippett. And she says, what's interesting about that verse is the verse doesn't say that, that God keeps the sparrow from falling. Mm -hmm. Um, The verse says God sees. Um, And so I, I just thought that was an interesting twist on that. Mm -hmm. There's a, a, comparable passage in the Quran that there's an Islamic philosopher that, that uh, comments on this um, about God um, knowing all of the hairs on our head and he knows all of the, all of the dust that's, that's aware. And Avicenna, this philosopher, as he's commenting on it says, um, but clearly um, God doesn't know individual particulars because that would mean that God changes Um, And that would mean that God is imperfect. And so God doesn't actually know those things. And yes, I know the Quran says this, and it takes the weight of a subtle genius to interpret what I'm saying here. And I love, I love that as sort of an overlay on this book as well. Um, God knows what's going on, but does he really know what's going on? And he's allowing things to happen. Maybe um, it's just this great ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nathan, I felt like you were about to say yeah. something about three times. Oh, yeah. So I, I was just going to say, um, uh, in preparation for this, I kind of wrote down what I thought the, the three main themes of the book were. And I, um, I agree with Marion, uh, agree with me on two of them. The third one that I thought, uh, I only picked up on this on my second read, was I think there's a real theme of uh, survival versus, um, I don't have a good word for it, but maybe a noble death. Mm-hmm. in that um, Sophia and Emilio uh, both several times discuss the issue of, is it better to be a survivor mm-hmm. or is it better to go down with your principles intact? Mm-hmm. And so, and they, they kind of flip-flop over the course of the book. So at the beginning of the book, Sophia is very clearly, no, you do what you got to do to survive, mm-hmm. but she's the one that goes down swinging at the end. Whereas Emilio was kind of, no, you know, the, what's right is right. And, you know, we're, we're doing what God wills us to do. And, you know, this is seemingly headed towards one of the stories you hear in Sunday school about the missionaries who, you know, die the tragic death, but they mar- were martyred. Uh, and instead, Emilio is the only survivor. He's the one that actually kind of, con- well, I mean, this, this is getting into the very end of the book, uh, the question of, well, how much did he actually compromise and how mm-hmm. much was it done to him? Um, but he's the one that survives. And so I thought that was um, 
something that kept coming up throughout the book. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So Nathan, you're probably not super familiar with the humanities program, but that la- that last theme that you're picking up on is very much a theme that arises in one of the readings for humanities too, with Mary Rowlandson, who is um, someone who's taken captive by Native Americans in the 1670s in the context of King Philip's War. And she writes about sort of, I think the struggle between trying to maintain her Puritan faith and especially her belief in God's providence at the same time, using all of her her skills as a Puritan woman in order to survive the ordeal where she's also talking about how one of the women just, you know, freaked out and lost it and and was killed. So, I mean, it's interesting. I feel like there's always a a tie back to the humanities program in every Mm -hmm. conversation we have. And Carrie, go. I actually think that there are two um, back to back in that particular section of humanities because Voltaire's Candide Mm. gets into as well, these Jesuit missionaries um, and the the missions and Voltaire is very dissatisfied, let's say with, with a lot of organized religion and these missions and, and will speak very satirically, angrily about the unintended consequences and sometimes the intended consequences of Westerners and religious folks entering into a culture that they don't know and kind of pillaging it um, Mm -hmm. and doing all sorts of terrible things Mm -hmm. to it. So I've wondered whether it would be kind of a fun pairing to do Mary Rollins and Voltaire followed by the Sparrow. Oh, wow. Um, That'd be awesome. mm -hmm. That'd be super awesome. I feel like um, The Sparrow is a little bit of a lengthy book, though, so we might uh, take that into consideration. But yeah, still, for yeah. the, the humanities lovers out there, yeah, that would be definitely a suggestion. I, and I cut you off, Marianne. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, um, okay, now I forget. What, <laughs> sorry. Um, I'll, I'll think of what I was going to say uh, in a minute, but I'm not thinking of it right now. About survival versus idealism. Oh, oh thank you. That was helpful. That- so one of the things, as I was looking back at the book again, one of the other, I, I wouldn't call this a major theme, but one of the other things that to me makes the book particularly meaningful is seeing the different attempts made by the people who talk to Father Sandos when he has returned to earth, um, the different attempts made um, by people to get him to talk about what happened. Mm-hmm. And um, many of the people who talk to him are themselves Jesuits. And so they also are people of faith. And so one strategy that one of the people employs is, um, look, uh, I wasn't born yesterday. I know that life can be really hard. We know that in the hundreds of years of history of our Jesuit order, there have been people who have faced really horrible things and have been ashamed of themselves for what they did in response to that. You're not alone. It's okay to confess. <laughs> and then some, uh, someone else says, you know, what I think you need to do is you need to go on a spiritual retreat, mm-hmm. which is something that Jesuits do. Mm-hmm. And one thing that happens on a spiritual retreat Uh, for a Jesuit is going through the spiritual exercises that Father Ignatius um, uh, put together. And a lot of those exercises are meant to lead a person toward 
deep, deep, deep self-examination, including uh, really confronting the sin in that person's life, which then leads to what the Jesuits call a time of desolation, because you feel so bad about what you've done. And it's only in desolation that Christ can then provide consolation for you. And even, and I feel like, okay, in the abstract, that sounds like decent spiritual advice, but for a person who's so, I I mean, I, I don't think we could possibly overstate how utterly, utterly traumatized Father Sandoz is. And so it feels almost like spiritual abuse to me, some of the things that his well-meaning advisors mm-hmm. say to him. So just as he was well-meaning and the scientists that went with him were well-meaning and some of the bad things that happen are things that Father Sandoz gives permission to um, thinking that that's the right thing. And it, in at least the case of one example I'm thinking of, it ends up costing someone else's life. Um, and, and so we're kind of back to the, you can say what you think spiritually is the right thing, but if the timing is wrong, if the person's situation is wrong, then you can do far more harm than good. Anne-Marie, you mentioned that you are not a huge fan of the genre. Was this the first sci-fi book that you have read? Well, no, because I think when I was in third or fourth grade, a teacher read Madeline Lingle's uh, A Wrinkle in Time. And I was intrigued by A Wrinkle in Time, but not intrigued enough to really pursue that genre. And I would say, and I'm I'm sure there's going to be a sharp intake of breath among listeners, but I'm not even a huge fan of the C.S. Lewis (gasps) Narnia series. I know. You know, it's. it's oh, I, I, I thought you were going sort of space trilogy, not not even Narnia. Yeah, I mean, oh. it's fine. Okay. It's fine. I, I like it and I can appreciate it, but that's never going to be my go-to. Like, uh, really, yes, I'm going to sit down and just enjoy something for fun. I, I read it very faithfully to my daughter, and I'm reading actually sort of fantasy sci-fi kind of stuff with her right now. Um, and it's actually really, again, it's really interesting. You're reading um, Ursula Le Guin. Oh, um, yeah. Book. And it, I, I, but I feel like, I think, I think I, as, as again, listeners will know when Carrie and I talk about what's on our nightstand, I have very down to earth, you know, plot driven, character driven, um, rooted in kind of reality kinds of things that's that's my preference yeah, generally histor- historical novels historical yeah. fiction, like it is yeah which is the way I used to be and then you know my partner was the one who got me super into sci-fi and this one was the first this was the first sci-fi book I read I think it was Ooh. the first sci-fi book I read um and so I can also say like Anne-Marie I'm not a huge C.S. Lewis fan either um so I I completely understand I know the two of us are hosting Bookish at Bethel and neither of us are big C.S. Lewis fans (laughs) seems scandalous in some way um but this book I the way it it was the first time I realized oh you know what if you put things in a sci-fi world just distant enough from our own it crystallizes certain 
problems and themes in ways that were just so fascinating to me. Um, it helped me that my partner was sitting next to me as I was reading this saying, finish it, Carrie, I want to talk to you. Finish it, finish it, finish it. <laughs> so I had incentive because he had finished it and did and was trying really hard not to say anything or spoil anything. Oh, Carrie, you have to tell the listeners that. So I don't, I haven't read the sequel. Have any of us read the sequel? No, I read the Wikipedia entry for the Okay, sequel. that doesn't count. But um, <laughs> so Carrie, when after Adam read this book, but then I told him there's a sequel, tell about the imaginary letter to the author that he wrote. Oh my gosh, I had forgotten about that. Yeah, he was very upset because he thought that it, it had, that the sparrow had this perfect ending. Um, and, 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 and sort of ambiguity, it was so well done. And so he had theorized a letter to sort of tell her why she needed to not um, publish this <laughs> because it would ruin so much of what, of the good work that she had done. I love that. Yep. Yeah. Um, I, so I don't know what Nathan will say about this, but I'll say a little bit of what, why a certain kind of sci-fi appeals to me. I, I don't, I don't think of myself as a sci-fi reader um, because in, in my head, sci-fi is, um, is fiction that focuses a lot on the, the science part of it mm. and tries to sort of explain, let me describe the spaceship in great detail. Let me talk about how this becomes possible. Um, and there's some of that in this book, but that kind of thing doesn't interest me, but this book is a, to me, a great example of what some kinds of sci-fi absolutely can be. And it's what Carrie just said about um, by placing something in a totally new environment, then, then the author uh, can encourage me as a reader to think about big questions. Um, but because the setting is different, it, it makes the whole book feel much more like here's an experiment. And um, I mean, that's what novels are. Novels are experiments in living. And as a reader, I can vicariously have that same experience. Um, Stephen King, whose work I also really like, uh, said once in, uh, in the book that he wrote about writing, he said that what he likes to do, he said, if, if you say to me, that my dialogue is not realistic, that my description of setting or of people's motivations is not realistic, I will take that as a really serious criticism of me as a writer. And he says, what he likes to do is, uh, is come up, is change one thing that happens. So what happens in a small town in Maine if a vampire shows up? So everything is normal, but this one thing, or I'm, I'm actually listening to a Stephen King book right now in which um, everything is normal, but the main character can see and talk to people who are dead. Um, and it's not like the sixth sense, but it, so to me, the sparrow, <laughs> but the sparrow fits into that category. Uh, what if everything is normal, but humans make contact with sentient beings elsewhere and, and apply our ways of thinking about uh, what those interactions are supposed to be like, our assumptions about, you know, all of that. Um, it, it just becomes a really interesting what if. Mm -hmm. Well, I, 
Um, I was with you right up until that last twist there. I was about to say, yes, that's my favorite kind of science fiction is where, you know, what, what if this one thing was different? How is that going to affect society? So like Minority Report, what if we could see the crimes before they took place? Policing wouldn't look the same. Society wouldn't look the same. What would it look like? And that, I, I love that kind of sci-fi. I was actually trying to figure out in the Sparrow, what's the one thing that's different and well, it's, we make contact with an alien society and how does that change? And I, I was actually, I, even on my second read, I was somewhat disappointed with, oh, they just say, oh, okay, aliens, cool. Um, and that's that. Like, I, I, don't, I don't feel like that. That's where I really wanted her to get more into the, oh, hey, this is, these are aliens. They, they do not share our history. They're on a totally different planet. And luckily, they're basically humanoid, and they have food that we can eat. And like the language is sensible enough that they're able to communicate with each other. And like I, yeah. So I, I was almost at the point of saying this isn't science fiction so much as it. it I agree that this was. Hey, let's get this thing off of Earth so it doesn't carry all of the baggage of specific things that really did happen in history and we can look at some of this you know abstracted away from that baggage but ah oh I, yeah and like i know i mary marion schools me on what is and isn't science fiction and what is and isn't good literature and so like i i feel really uncomfortable disagreeing with her here but i i yeah i would be happy to uh i would be happy to think of this as not science fiction um, I would just say this is a philosophically and theologically interesting book, um, yeah. kind of period. It's kind of like, I, I, I don't view uh, Star Wars as science fiction. Star Wars takes place in space with lasers and, and so on, but it's not science fiction. It's space. Well, could we, so then what genre, because now I'm sort of devastated because maybe the first sci-fi novel I ever read <laughs> is not actually sci-fi. Um, what would we call this or, or Star Wars? Like fantasy? Uh, yeah. Um, okay. I don't I And that's the thing. Like, I, was, I was trying so hard to figure out, does the plot of this book depend on it taking place in space? Mm. And to some extent, yes. But so could, could this book just not have been in space and still been the same book, I think it kind of could have. Mm. It, um, it was very useful to say, no, let's get it off of Earth and, and yeah. you can explore it better that way. Um, I, so I, I haven't read the sequel, but in the interview uh, that I listened to with the author, um, by then the sequel had already been published. And one of the things... All I know about the sequel is that there is, is that uh, Father Sandoz returns to oh. the other planet. And because of uh, the, the way that time gets bent in given the distance that have to be, that has to be traveled, um, more time has transpired than, so a lot of time has transpired by the time he gets there. And so uh, one of the things that um, the author brings up is that uh, part of what she was trying to reflect on between these two books is how do we think about history and how do we think about who are the good guys and the bad guys? And she said, 
Well, it depends on where you start the story and where you stop the story. Um, and then uh, she also was talking about, uh, you know, so you need a long enough span of time in order to answer some of those questions. And so back to your comment, Nathan, my sense is if you take the two books together, the idea of being on another planet because of the time situation that that allows probably is necessary um, unless you have a, an earthbound sci-fi where you have Father Sandoz cryogenically frozen and he uh, is reanimated 200 years from now or something like that. But then, but see, then you've got sci-fi also. Yeah. And in this case, since we're, we're there, I think she was trying to commentate on some stuff that was happening when, you know, just getting across the Atlantic Ocean took a really long time yeah. and you couldn't just fly, you know, jet back to Europe for the weekend. And so I, at having, you know, all this travel time, I think, did allow for that. Hey, no, we're we're here alone. We can't really conveniently talk to people back at headquarters. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that part of it um, was important. But yeah, I, I, hmm. Well, and I'll just add, Nathan, um, I'm a little shocked that you're, you're, you don't consider Star Wars science fiction, but truth be told, I have actually shown Star Wars in my History of the American West class. And it makes me actually think that a lot of these books are sort of in the genre, if you think largely enough, of the Western, mm -hmm. because you've got, you know, two different, really, you know, two very different groups encountering each other. Uh, maybe in somebody else's territory and, you know, there's a showdown, they got to figure things out, et cetera. So. But I mean, I, I think George Lucas has been very upfront about the fact that the original star Wars was the hidden fortress in space. Like he just, he wholesale ripped <laughs> off Kurosawa yeah. and said, Hey, you know, no, it's not taking place in feudal Japan anymore. Now it's, now it's in outer space, but yeah. it's the same story. Perfect. And mostly the same characters too. I love the fact that you're illustrating the genre of the Western by referencing a Japanese filmmaker um, who, I mean, mm -hmm. I totally get why you would do that, but I just find that interesting. Mm -hmm. Hey, I mean, Ron is much more interesting than King Lear. So uh, to me, <laughs> my husband would agree. Yeah. We just watched um, the first half anyway of that. So mm -hmm. uh, anyway, hey, I want to make sure I leave time to um, ask you all uh, what's on your nightstand. What are you reading for fun? Or if you don't have something currently on your nightstand, um, what are you placing on your nightstand to read for fun? So maybe Nathan, I know you just finished rereading The Sparrow. So um, what's on your nightstand? Uh, well, as a crowd pleaser for at least the people in this conversation, I, I'm reading Nightwatch by Terry Pratchett. Uh, so I got in the Pratchett, I got in some time travel for Marion. Um, and it's topical because it, it's uh, in the book, Sam Vimes, you know, my favorite Discworld character, gets sent back in time and he's teaching his own younger self how to be a good police officer mm -hmm. in the midst of a city that is on its way towards disaster. So wow. tensions are high in the city. He encounters himself having just become a police officer and has to teach himself how to be a good cop. That sounds so, awesome. Yes. Yeah. That is very timely. Mm -hmm. Speaking um, of time, right? Yeah. Right. yeah. And Marianne, what's on your nightstand? Okay. So I mentioned that I'm listening to Stephen King's newest book. I'm actually almost finished. I have like 15 minutes left. Uh, and on my nightstand right now is a book by Rachel Mikva, who is uh, 
a uh, religious studies scholar um, and she's Jewish and her book is called Dangerous Religious Ideas. And uh, I forget what the subtitle is, but the gist is uh, she focuses on the three Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And uh, she's arguing that uh, it's not just people who are religiously, quote, liberal or progressive who are willing to ask hard and self-critical questions about their own religion, but that built into the fabric of all three of those religions, she argues, um, is that self-examination, self-critique, that that's, that's part and parcel of what it means um, to be a person of faith. And uh, I've just started the book, so I don't know exactly where she goes with that, but yes. I'm interested in reading it. Excellent. And Carrie, what is on your nightstand? Well, uh, our listeners weren't, will know we're, we're aiming toward a Ulysses podcast. So the big, the big fat Ulysses is on my nightstand that I'm working through. And then Agnes Boker's cat, um, still working through sort of witchcraft, um, travesties, tragedies in, in Stuart and Tudor England for, for fun. Well, I'm going to round it off by just confessing that I needed something really light this week. And I had the pleasure of visiting Jen McNabb down in Iowa, and she is a collector of vintage Nancy Drew mystery stories. (laughs) So I brought five home for Lydia, my daughter, but I couldn't resist rereading them. So I have been um, reading frenziedly through... um, five Nancy Drew mystery stories. And I'm going to tell you that that felt right this week. So Uh I'm not going to even apologize for Uh the light reading that I did. Uh Um, Nathan, I should, I should point out. This is a no apology, no judgment zone. Right. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, Nathan, I want to point out that you are our first, I think, non humanities guest. Yes. I thought you had at least one psychologist on but, yeah, but she, mm, that's true. Uh, but she teaches in the humanities program. Okay. So I, I think I'm the interloper who doesn't, who clear I've listened to your past episodes, but I, I don't know anything about the books that your listeners are reading to are reading as part of the humanities program. So I just hope you feel as honored as I, I do that you actually accepted the invitation. Well, I think, I think this, this podcast episode was promised what, two years ago, three years ago. <laughs> so I had to follow through. Perfect. Well, um, Nathan, thanks for joining us. Marion, thank you for joining us. And uh, folks, you've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. Bethel.